0: and welcome back to the third episode of The Apocalyptic Fig. Today's episode is the second part of our vocations chat between Deacon John and I. We are recording this on Thursday, November 5, following the November 3rd presidential election. So, anxieties are high, we still don't have answers. We're getting more answers, but Anxieties are high, so are stresses. So we're just going to take a little breather. We're going to chat about discipleship, mission, God's hand in our own lives. First off, thank you for
1: talking about this. I think it's important. Last last week we talked about the vocation of the Christian discipleship that all of us are called to. And I think both of us kind of made a little comment that I don't want to really talk about. I mean, we don't we don't, yes. we don't feel comfortable talking about ourselves, but I I kind of thought about that a little bit. And yes, you know, I can talk about ourselves, but people love to hear people's stories. And we may have listeners in this episode that may never become a permanent deacon, may never become a priest, but they are on a vocational a path of vocational discipleship. And since all of us are on this pathway to Christian discipleship in a vocation in service of the church, I think there's some similarities. And people are going to relate to whatever we share. And it's fun, maybe not for us, to talk about our own journeys. Well, it's not that big of a burden. But it's it's really, really intriguing to hear other people's stories. And I think mm. people like to hear that because I love to hear other people's, some places call it a testimony um, and maybe someday we can have a parishioner come in here and tell us their discipleship story. I was ordained a permanent deacon on July 13th of 2013, so that makes me just about seven and a seven and a half years uh, of ordination. Have
0: you been at St. Mary that whole time?
1: Yeah, yep. I st- we moved here in 97, so I was a member of this parish for a long time. I, actually, 11 years before, let's see, 97, 2007, yeah, uh, 11
0: years before I started the formation program which you... would have been in 2008. Oh my gosh. So you were here a long time. Yeah. I mean, you were like well established before yes. you ever decided to enter into the diaconate. Prior to you moving here, where were you?
1: We were in Iowa City and we I was we were uh, members of St. Patrick's, the old St. Patrick's, the one that was hit by the tornado. And um that's where my oldest child was baptized, but she was just she was born in June, and we moved to Grinnell in August. So that whole time leading up to that, um, we arrived in Iowa City probably in 92, um, moved to Grinnell in 97, so we were at St. Pat's. Now, we were members of St. Pat's, but we went. there was five Catholic churches in Iowa City at the time, so we right. went to Mass when it was convenient because there was just about every hour of the weekend you could go to Mass. <laughs>
0: it's not so much like that anymore. but Definitely. When you were in Iowa City, prior to you moving to Grinnell, did you think about the deaconate? That would go back to childhood. I
1: didn't. I, I grew up in the archdiocese, the same archdiocese that you grew up in, yep. and way out in the western corners. There was, there was no permanent deacons in that part of the state. Never even heard of a permanent deacon. Didn't even know what a deacon was. Didn't know a deacon existed. That was growing up. St. Patrick's. In Iowa City, that parish that we belonged to, was the very first time I had ever seen a deacon. And I had no idea who that guy was. Hmm. His name was Bob Larson. I was like, what is that guy doing? He's talking about his wife. He's um, dressed a little differently. And um, that was the first time I encountered a deacon. It picked my interest a little bit. Because there's, there's feelings of, at least for me, and I could tell you, I mean, we had to write a spiritual autobiography before we even started the deacon program. And, and if I went back and read that, I, I could go back and read this, the things that happened in childhood. That churchy things that kind of can sort of see the dots connecting all the way up into our life. And that's not just with me. I think people can see that. That's who we were is who we become, right? Yes. So... Did I think about becoming a permanent deacon in at um, St. Patrick's um, in Iowa City prior to moving to Grinnell? Um, and the answer would be no, but I was like, "That's really
0: cool. I've never seen such a thing." I also thought it was weird. <laughs> so you didn't have you didn't have a deacon? Did not your parish up in the archdiocese? No, and you have
1: to realize that I grew up uh, when I grew up. I graduated high school in 1986, and if we could look back in the history of the diaconate in the archdiocese, I don't think it started, was restored, until 1980. Gotcha. And I okay. think there was just, a, I mean, a tiny, tiny fraction, I mean a handful,
0: sure. if that. When do you earnestly start feeling it? Well, and was it instigated by Deacon Bill Olson? It was instigated by the two permanent deacons we had this
1: at this parish, gotcha. and it wasn't. It wasn't a hey, I want you to become a deacon. It was um, becoming involved with the parish. When we moved to town, it was a wonderful experience. It was a wonderful time in our life. Um, we had a new newborn baby. Um, we, we had a welcoming parish. Um, it's a small parish, which is much easier to get involved. Yeah, Deacon Steve, who is now Father Steve, was. They were very involved with the parish. We were involved with the parish their example to me and there was a couple of times where Bill Olson kind of grabbed me off to the side and he says hey you need to think about this there isn't a program right now in our in our diocese but hey you know you need to you know you don't don't close your mind off to the possibility you know so that's so yes the deacons of this parish and that was kind of that and, th- that and a strong desire to serve the church in some capacity, which is what everybody that is on the path of a vocational discipleship is experiencing, no matter whatever their vocation is. And I had that tug, and that's
0: where she went. When you made the decision, was the decision to just go and see if that's what you wanted? Or when you made the decision, was it a, I am pretty darn sure that this, is part of my vocational call, part and parcel of my discipleship, and so I'm just gonna go and do it. Inquiry, which is what we called it at the time, and I think they still do, was very structured,
1: and so there wasn't a like, hey, I'm gonna become a deacon, because that's not how things like that work, and hey, I'm gonna become this vocation, because it's a path, it's a process, it's a formation, and it's a, most importantly, it's a discernment. And it's not just the discernment of the individual. It's also the discernment of the community, which is the greater community of our diocesan church. So there wasn't a switch. There was an inquiry. And then there was this random phone call. Deacon McCoy called out of the blue. I happened to be at home, and he says, hey, your name has been given to us, probably for Bill. Would you, would you please go over to Newton and just come and listen? I went over to Newton, and there was probably... Gosh, I I can't tell you. There's 15 couples there. Throughout the entire process of formation, from the moment that I thought maybe that's something I could possibly consider looking into, it was always a process of discernment. It was a never, I'm going to become this. There were some times where I was, I'm not kidding. There were some times where I was saying, please, Lord, close the door on this. Mm. You know, because I, you know, it's, me getting in the way I know we choose our vocations but it was me I was like you know I don't know if I can do this I don't know if I want to do this I don't know if I'm worthy of placing and I don't mean I'm not trying to exalt deacons there's my probably somebody better for this than me you know what I mean
0: God calls us as we are right strengthens us as we move along yeah how did Sherry feel about it very open to it it wouldn't have you know you know the answer to that
1: I know that the formation process for the priest is very structured. The discernment of the community is very structured. The 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 uh, discernment of the individual uh, seeking the priestly vocation is very structured. There's an extra element
0: for a, a permanent deacon. Exactly. Is the other
1: person exactly. that's
0: involved? Is the wife, and also if the deacon has like chil- has children, yeah. has a family, yeah, and like a full time job. And everyone's got a full-time job. <laughs> this is true. Like yes. those are all these factors that I did not have to think about at all. Exactly.
1: And if there's, and throughout the process, these interviews were not. We had psychiatry uh, psychiatrists interview both of us as a couple. Um, several people. This was before we even started. Yeah. And if there was any inkling, and these people are professionals, by the way, if there was any inkling that Sherry was not open to this, you're going to have to find a different vocation. It, it's a matter of support. She has to, She's. it's a package deal. A lot of people get into that mentality, well, then they're both getting ordained and they're both, she, she did not choose to become a permanent deacon. She chose to participate and support me on my pathway and serve my my pathway to service of the church. That doesn't mean that she's completely disconnected from it, but she went yeah. to this formation sessions with me our marriage was evaluated—the stability of our marriage, our relationship was with, e- with each other—but in reality, she chose to walk with me on my discernment. Yeah, with me on my discernment to become the permanent deacon. Which there's no, there's no, um, there is a strong understanding that she's not held to anything. She doesn't have to take any diaconal ministries. Now mm-hmm. she she chooses to yeah, chooses to serve the church.
0: In the way she to does so, yeah. It,
1: yeah, so it's an interesting question. There's a lot of it, dynamics. It is,
0: I know. I it I mean, like that process of discerning am I called to this like very real, very specific ministry of the church, and that is to be uh, to be at the service of the church. While working, having a wife, having children, which are all like, vocations. Uh, I don't know, like taking care of a home, all of these things whereby you don't you don't work full time for the church. No. As like a job. No. So there's like this whole different world that I would I would argue almost every catholic doesn't know anything about and that is the diaconate because what they see they see your service to the community whether that's baptisms wedding prep weddings celebrating mass with me preaching but they don't know all of this other stuff that you are going through and discerning through which is family life and jobs and i just think maybe maybe the church ought to do a better job at <laughs> at chatting about the diaconate a little bit more
1: yes and one of the things that you you reminded me of something big time when you just mentioned that because you said mass celebrating baptisms and and the really interesting thing about that is the deacon the, the role of the deacon in the community of believers is to be the sacramental sign of Jesus Christ, the servant. So the liturgical stuff are what the vast majority, the lit, and when I mean liturg- liturgical stuff, I mean um, the things that you just listed. When people see the permanent deacon, they usually see him at mass, but that is just not even close to what, the meaning of the deacon is in the church and some deacons are blessed to have more time on their hands but the service side of it it's it's word and service and a huge chunk of a deacon's ministry is centered around things that people don't see now i mean the ministry to the church there's a lot of us deacons in our diocese that are blessed with retirement and they have a much bigger role in the ministry of service. Um, some of them are almost doing it on a full-time basis, or they are, and they're not employees of the church. There are some who are employees of the church. And then there's the rest of us who, we have to gauge our family life, our vocation, or our careers, uh, our way we're gonna manage our home with, uh, aside from all that liturgical stuff, which is just a tiny, should be just a tiny portion, of the service that we do for the church. That, that's influx constantly for a de- permanent deacon, wherever his stage is in life. And right now, i just exiting um, a period of my life where kids are going to be leaving the home. Freedom, <laughs> freedom, a little more freedom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> know, <Yeah>. Freedom, <laughs> and, 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 you know, the, then the ministry, then the evaluation of the ministry will have to be taken down by me and my pastor and my, and, and my bishop and spiritual direction okay, now maybe what am I gonna do next? In, in in within the vocation of being a permanent deacon, what service avenue am I gonna take in in the name of the church as 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 I can be that? Exercise my role as the sacramental sign of Jesus Christ the servant in the in the community of believers. So there's a lot of things that a deacon does that is not in the liturgy. If the liturgy's it's one hour a week. <laughs> right? It's just like, and it should be that way with everybody, by the way. And, and it is. It, it and, and I'm not saying it, it. And sometimes deacons have free time. Sometimes they don't have free time to do all these things. And it depends on your job. There are deacons that are truck drivers
0: over the road truck drivers. Now they can take that ministry with them. This constant discernment of what are my gifts matched with what is my time, my availability? What are the Maybe what are the pressures that I have at work and at home right now that would maybe hinder or allow me more time? In that sense, from where I am coming from as an ordained priest, the diaconate has a lot more discernment to it. A lot more processes to pray and think through and to talk through. Because when I want to make a decision about the way in which I am living out my ministry. I don't have to talk to anybody except my spiritual director. You and deacons in general, if they are married, have to process those things with your family, with your workplace. Do I have the time? And so I just want to thank you for, <laughs> for all of that, for, for the time that you are able to gift, not only to the church, but to my life. And improving the way in which I encounter people, because it's it's a good way. It's a great witness. The Econ is a great witness to the church. It's the symbol of service. It's this symbol of ongoing discernment. It's this symbol of faithfulness, even if we're struggling, right or triumphing. This process of moving through our vocation is so much easier to see in the diaconate than it is in the priesthood, I think. Because once I'm ordained a priest, then I'm a priest. Right, and so I'm given a parish and hopefully I do a good job at that parish. But deacons have a job and they have a family and so all of these factors are coming into play and yet here you are continually serving with me on sundays celebrating on the weekends with baptisms and weddings journeying with couples being a evangelizer in your word and in your love and in your deeds at work in your neighborhood and so there are so <laughs> there are so many more factors at play in the life of a deacon Than there are in the life of a priest.
1: You need to give yourself more credit, (laughs)
0: Father. It's (laughs) not that I don't want to give myself credit, it's just that my life as a single man wedded to the church instead of having a full time job and a whole separate family is much different. Oh, yeah, it's different. I I would, you know,
1: I've been told that. I don't, know. I've been told that the permanent diaconate um, is, um, I, you know, it, it may be the, it may be that middle ground between the priesthood and the vocation of married life, kind of like, because, you know, deacons are clerics. They're they're considered clerics in the church. There are, we do receive that. So it, it's kind of a middle area, like you say, it is. Um, one of the things that I, if I can get This across to people, the vocational life of a deacon is not much different from the vocational life of of a lay Christian disciple, Jesus. Sure. Because we're called to service, right? Yes. With that in mind, 95% of the vocational life of the deacon is experienced by that individual deacon away from this building. And it's a reminder to ourselves, all of us, that we are out there in the world different than a priest. Now, and I'm not talking about deacons only. I'm talking about all people that have a Christian vocation. When we're out there, we are all the sacramental sign of Christ, the servant to the people we encounter. And I run into that a lot at work. Um, the minute people at work find out I'm a deacon, all of a sudden I'm engaging in conversations that I would not probably be engaging sure. in if they were not. <laughs> sure. Not sure. aware of what I was or who I was or what my vocation was. It's structured. It's a structured identified vocation in the church. And that's pretty much the difference, except that there's the sacramental side of that. When we go back to that question you had me about, when was I called to a deacon? And I kind of explained my first understanding of what a deacon was. Even when I first got to town, Bill and Steve, my connection with them was here. But as I went through formation and as I've grown as a deacon, I've come to realize that that encounter that I had, that example with those deacons, was so limited to this building. I had no idea. There's this. There's this whole outside world that we have as vocation. Is and then then you realize. Well, wait a minute. That's just not for deacons. That's for all of us. There's nothing that says one of our parishioners cannot be a, a do prison ministry. That Absolutely. They can't, there's nothing that says they can't do communion services at the prison because that's
0: all I was doing. Yeah. Right. So. Absolutely. I remember when I was uh, growing up in Minnesota. So I grew up in Minnesota. My okay. My family and I. Uh, in we lived in the diocese. We lived within the diocese of Saint Cloud, which is just about an hour north of the Twin Cities. And in my childhood parish, Immaculate Conception in Becker, Minnesota, we had a deacon. His name was Greg Steele. He just he just died maybe about a year ago. But Greg and his wife Kathy had children like my age and my older brother's age. Kathy was the she was the like administrative assistant for the parish. And then Greg was the deacon, but he also worked. And then his son was really good friends with my older brother, Drew. And he would come over to our house and spend the night. And we would spend hours playing the Super Nintendo downstairs. <laughs> and like those are my first memories of the permanent diaconate. Just how cool and what a gift Greg was to our family's life. Greg and Kathy both were to our family's life because he was a cool guy and he was so personable, so kind, so gentle and also just a legit dad. That was my first introduction to the deaconate. I didn't, when, it, when we moved to Minnesota, we had we had one deacon for a short while and then I moved to St. Ambrose to go to school and then i didn't really there were no deacons at st ambrose obviously mm-hmm, that's true and then i went to seminary and so when i came back as a priest we had daryl fortin i mm-hmm. st john bianney and now i move here and you are here serving alongside me and i just have so much love in my heart for the permanent diaconate. because it is such a great witness Not only to the church, but piggybacking off of what you shared earlier, it is such a great witness of what service can look like for all people.
1: Yeah, a couple of things, and then we need to start talking about the priesthood. Sure. But um, it, you mentioned Daryl, and I'm sure that your experience with Daryl is much different than it is with me, because he's at a different stage, and uh, I don't want to make <laughs> Yeah, he's in a different He's retired. Yeah, so his ministry and it's a much bigger parish to it. But you mentioned something. and You said Dad, and that's something that, that I the last thing that I think we probably could talk about with it, with with the permanent diaconate. There are there were three people in my three men in my class, couples in our class, that had small children. Everybody else had grandkids that were older. Some of had grandkids older than my kids. One of the things that 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 uh, is really interesting about the diaconate, and I've thought about this over and over and over. My wife got got a say. She had a say whether we went through this. My kids didn't. Yeah, they didn't get a choice. And one of them was, you know, Josh, the youngest. I don't know how old was he. He was just. I remember him running around the. We didn't have a classroom yet, and Bishop Amos is there, and we were celebrating mass, and I remember Josh was either three and a half or four years old. And Bishop Amos was with us celebrating mass and he's running around in that library at Assumption with the Bishop's miter on his head and Riley is chasing him with his crook with the bishop's staff. And and Bishop Amos is just laughing and I'm mortified. Okay, okay. So my kids had a very interesting experience because they did go to every formation weekend. Yeah. They did some kid stuff. They didn't get to say, No, I don't want you to become a deacon. We talked about it, but they were young, you know? And now I, I can't undo it. <laughs> I don't sure. want to, but you mentioned the kids, and that is a whole different dynamic that maybe could be explored a little bit more in um,
0: the discernment and formation process at deacons. Before we move on to the priesthood, do you and your kids talk about it? Do they ask questions about it? The kids
1: It's a reality. You know, they were so young. It's a reality for them. They were steeped in it. And now it's been a long period of time. And we've had kids in middle school that have graduated, and now they're graduating from college. So they, they were steeped in it, and it was an experience for them. They piled in the car. They went to Davenport. They spent the weekend there with the other kids, and they came to Mass with us, and we celebrated as a community. So it's part of their growing up. So there's not any curiosity as what a deacon is with them. They know. So, Father, can I, I? I don't want to hijack this, but can we go back and and, and can I ask you, what's your first encounter with a priest? <laughs> Baptism, right? <laughs> Just kidding.
0: I don't remember anything about church until probably not. I'm I was nine. Okay. I remember very vaguely having my first communion. There's a picture of it. My parents have a picture of it of me receiving my first communion with them behind me. But my earliest memory of church is living in Minnesota, going to Immaculate Conception and sitting in the front row, because my parents always made us sit in the front row. We, I, we were sitting in the front row and I would imitate Father Mark while he was doing whatever he was doing. And I told my mom, at that age, nine, that I wanted to be a priest. Not because I knew what priesthood was. I didn't even know what going to church was about. All I knew was that Father, we loved Father Mark, and Father Mark loved us back, and so I wanted to be like him when I was older. He was this great model for me growing up. We lived right outside of these two lakes, just down the road from these two lakes. And Mark, Father Mark Ostendorf, What's his name? Mark had a cabin on the one of the lakes. And so we, as a family, would just go over to his cabin. And we would spend all Saturday there. Or all Sunday there. And we would jet ski. And we would grill out. And my parents would drink beers with him. Right? And us kids would just play around. And so we knew him so well. He was Absolutely a part of our lives in so many aspects. We loved him. He is one of the best people I've ever met. So then we moved. And we moved to Iowa. When we moved, I was getting into high school. In your typical like high school teenager fashion, I was just becoming disenchanted with the church. And so I was confirmed. And I was not a, we went to church every Sunday, but I was not an active member of the parish. Didn't get to know the priests. Didn't want to get to know the priests all that much. And so then when I was graduating high school, I decided to go to St. Ambrose. And I did not decide to go to St. Ambrose because it was Catholic. I could care less that it was a Catholic university. The reason that I went to St. Ambrose was because A, my friends were there, the second reason is because St. Ambrose has the best dorms in the state of Iowa. And campus is beautiful, and it's in Davenport, which is where my dad grew up, so I was really familiar with the city. And so it was just it was just a, a great fit for me, I thought. And I got a great music scholarship from that. And so I go to St. Ambrose. I went to St. Ambrose as a music major. I was really... Excited about what was going to happen and I took my first music class and I hated it. It was the worst thing I had ever taken And so I and so I immediately Wanted out I immediately wanted out of music, but I didn't know what to do I had no idea what else was out there or what I was interested in learning about and then maybe spending the rest of my life teaching or living or learning about And so the first, the second class I had at St. Ambrose was a intro to philosophy course with Father Brian Micklow. And I had no idea what the class was about, but I loved Father Brian. (laughs) I had him too. (laughs) Right? He is such a loving, crazy human being. And his heart is... An absolute heart of gold. And so, as I am taking this philosophy class and I'm engaging with Father Brian Miklow, I am feeling this tug at my heart that I have not felt since I lived in Minnesota. But I'm not really acknowledging it. I know that it's there and I can feel that tug, but I'm not acknowledging it. I'm not there yet. And so, The second semester I took another philosophy course to see if I could really start to understand it because I loved Father Brian so much that I really wanted to start to figure out what this was all about. So I took a second philosophy course and as I'm chewing with this second course, the spring semester, I'm loving it, right? I'm really getting into it and so I decided to pick up philosophy as my major. While this is happening, Sister Rita Cameron who is a religious sister of uh, the Presentation Sisters in Dubuque, she was down at St. Ambrose full-time as a campus music minister. She knew I could sing, and so she was dogging me to come and canter for mass. And I kept rejecting her. Re- when I say reject, I mean avoid. Didn't respond to her emails, avoided her in public, because I didn't want to go to church. I was disinterested in going to church. So I didn't go to church at all my first semester. And then my second semester, as I'm falling in love with philosophy, Rita, Sister Rita, gets me because I start to feel bad. And I say, okay, I will canter one mass for you. And so I showed up, I remember, I showed up on a Wednesday morning, just dragged out of bed, I probably looked terrible. And Rita greeted me with so much love. (laughs) And I don't know why, because I was so rude to her. I was so rude to her because I avoided her like the plague and never responded to her. And when I saw her, she was so sweet. And we played and we sang and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it because the songs were familiar. They reminded me of something that I loved. And so I cantered that mass, and then I just started cantering masses because I really liked Sister Rita. I thought she was great, but I was also at that time, not all that wrapped up in the faith, right? I went to church, I received the Eucharist, but it wasn't that I was all that into it at all. And so I got to know in that process by going to church, I got to know Father Chuck and it was Father Chuck who really sealed everything for me. That inkling or that tugging at my heart that I felt with Father Brian, I felt not like an inkling or a tug, but just like, like the heart, my heart was just grasped and then just ripped out of my chest, broken open, when I got to know Father Chuck. And it was Father Chuck, in his words, in his love, in his humor, that reminded me of everything that I loved about being Catholic. And that was human relationship. And so as I'm getting to know Chuck and Rita and Sheila Delury, who was part of the campus ministry, I am just falling into being there all the time, being at the church all the time, hanging out with Father Chuck, Sister Rita, Sheila. And as I'm falling in love with them, they are showing me how to fall in love with the church. And all of these aspects of my faith that I just didn't acknowledge, wrote off. And to this day, I will always credit the rebirth of my vocation to... Father Chuck, Sister Rita, and Sheila DeLurie. It was felt first, God placed it in my heart first with Father Mark in Minnesota, but it was those three individuals who reminded me of everything that I felt from God when I was nine. And then from then on, I just committed myself to being a part of the church. And that doesn't mean I didn't struggle with belief and faith, struggle with church teachings, chewed on them, fought about them, argued with them, right? Yeah, yeah, that's cool. yeah. Yeah. And then I get into my senior year of college. I have picked up a theology major at this point. So I'm a philosophy and theology major. I want to teach full time. I want to be a professor. And so I take the GRE and the night that I took the GRE, I called the vocations director because in my heart, I knew that it was not the right thing to do. <laughs> I should not have taken the GRE. I kept pushing and pushing and pushing it away from me. And then I took the GRE and I got home and I called Marty Getz, who was the vocations director at the time. And I just thought, I am not doing what I need to be doing right now. I'm not focused on what I need to be focused on. And that was a huge loss for me, because I was so thrilled and excited to get my master's degree, to get my PhD, and then to start teaching theology. I was so excited about it. And so it was a huge loss when I acknowledged that I really needed to pursue this path into seminary. In, in, inject that a little bit interject now yeah. on that.
1: we'd mentioned last week about um I, I think we talked a little bit about when you when you're in the discernment path of a vocation remember we have mentioned that this there's sacrifice involved and it sounds like you're explaining that that um that's that sacrifice that hap.
0: one of the sacrifices that happened so yeah that's great go on yeah <laughs> this is great So I experience this loss, but also in place of this loss, I also am experiencing this new freedom where I have closed one door, a door into this great future that I thought I was gonna have. And in its place, God sets me in this path that is not clear, but is wide open. It's no longer just a doorway. It is this massive winding path ahead of me that I now have to figure out with him, with all of these people by my side as I walk down it. And so the night before my graduation from St. Ambrose, I'm taking a walk with one of my best friends, Sarah. We're walking around campus and I'm just telling her how terrified I am about going to seminary in the fall. And she says to to me, would that we could all go to seminary and figure out what it was that God was calling us to. Why don't we make it mandatory for every single person to go to seminary and figure out what it is that God is calling them to? Because seminary is this huge stretch of time whereby the only thing you're doing is learning how to discern. So I go to seminary, I absolutely hate it, and I end up falling in love with God more and more every day. My first day at seminary, I was helped into my room by one of my other best friends at college, Erin. She was living in Chicago then. I went to seminary in Mundelein. And she helps me move in, we go out to eat, And then she leaves, and in her absence, I crumble. Because I'm in a new city, well, I'm in Mundelein, which is just north of Chicago. I know zero people. I am so uncomfortable. I'm terrified. I have no idea what God wants for me in my life. And so what I do is, I wanna run away. And as I'm figuring out, okay, do I wanna pack my car up and just leave now, or do I wanna give it A day and then leave tomorrow. (laughs) As I'm thinking, that's hilarious. As I'm processing this, processing like how I'm gonna leave seminary, I have a knock on my door. That's, by the way, that's so rational. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) Exactly. So I'm high on anxiety, stressed out to the max, kind of how like we all feel right now in the midst of this election. I hear a knock on my door. He said he he knocks on my door. He introduces himself. He says, Hi, I'm Radley. I'm your next door neighbor. I shake his hand. I say, It's nice to meet you. I'm Ross. He points to the closet and he says, Aren't these closets the smallest thing you've ever seen? And then from then on, I felt great. I felt so fine. It was like in this person, Radley, who is one of my best friends Can I ask ever. a question? Was, yeah. he, was he at your ordination? Yeah, he was at the okay,
1: ordination. Okay, I, I was too, and I remember seeing him. So.
0: Yes. Okay. In Radley, I was visited by the only person that I needed to see at that moment, and it was Christ. Just this consolation whereby I know that I am not alone and that everything, while it might seem absolutely disastrous right now, Everything going to be okay. Take a breath, go to bed, wake up tomorrow, do it again. And so as I journey through seminary, it is not my fa- it is not my favorite place, it is not my favorite time of my life, and the reason being is twofold. First, it is incredibly difficult in that you have to process all of this stuff in your heart and on your mind and figure out if I can reconcile everything that I am with everything that God is and be a priest of Jesus Christ. So that is, in and of itself, a massive burden, a massive undertaking, and a lot of prayer. And so it's exhausting. The other reason I didn't like it is because seminary is a microcosm whereby they teach you or show you a world that does not exist, where everyone's Catholic and everyone says the same stuff and dresses the same way, and that's just not the reality of the world. And so when priests are ordained and they leave seminary, so many of them hit this culture shock whereby they're no longer with peers who dress in collars and who pray the same prayers. They're out in the world, which is messy and dirty and not black and white. I like living in gray, and I I love being in the secular world and enjoying other people and learning and growing and experiencing. And so seminary is not for me. (laughs) <laughs> Which is good because I wasn't ordained to be in seminary. I was ordained to be in the world, and to be a priest for Jesus Christ. And it would be
1: a bit of a concern if if a if a, if a young man or an old man who is discerning the priesthood in seminary um, enjoyed that life. Yeah, because that's a concern. And well, they must then they probably should consider staying there, <laughs> and then you know just living in the seminary because they're not going to function right. I mean, it's just like you say. It's interesting how you bring up the discernment. I, I really that was awesome, by the way. Thank I you. loved hearing that. There were so many things that you said that I think anyone listening to this program m- can relate to. Oh, my gosh. He experienced that, or it, he had that experience. He dealt with those fears. Well, I'm discerning a, a, a vocation as a disciple of Jesus Christ in my life, and I, I have some of those fears or experiences as well. And When you were talking about... Um, the discernment process. and I, It made me think about my discernment process and the formation process was murder. I hated it, <laughs> just like you. It was completely different. But let me take that back. There was a lot of learning that was really, really enriching. Yes. But I, I, I wanted to say, I think I told the director of the formation for the program, and I also think I told Bishop Amos, that formation was eviscerating for me because it... Forced me to address every single aspect of my life and confront things that I discovered about myself that I did not like or did could not believe about myself. It, it was transforming. It was very painful. It was very unpleasant. And um, in, in in I know that you probably had an you probably had a scrutinies committee that you had to meet to a board, priest board, or somebody. We had to meet with a deacon, diaconal um, ordination scrutinies committee um, periodically, once a year, I think. And it was a board of couples and people from our, our diocese. And they would sit there, and you would sit there in this room, and they'd be in a half circle.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And your wife would be there, and then she would leave, and they would ask you all these questions. And you would leave, and they would ask your questions, and you couldn't, you know. But I remember in my last. Um, my last meeting, a month before ordination, maybe two months, I can't remember when it was, but it was at the end of six years, right? Not six years of like you went through because it wasn't all day, every day of the week. But I remember them asking me, what if we told you that um, you're, it's, we're, thank you for giving us six years of your life. We've decided that this is not for you. And it was, I think it was a little bit of a test because I think they were trying to see how we would respond to that. And my, by then we were, we were formed yeah. as much as they could form us. I mean, we formed the rest of our lives. But my response was genuine and it was, um, I said, I could have, you know, I could have, I could have, you know, missed a lot of the, these pains by not going through this process. But if we find out today that this is not for me, and you're telling me that, or next week I wake up in the morning and say this is not for me, this last six years, even though it was more painful than anything, was the most enriching time of my life. So I can, on a definitely different level than you, I I had a similar um, process. I mean, not a similar process, but my experiences with formation were painful in a different way. And I think that is going to be like that for anybody.
0: Absolutely, on different levels, and that's how you—that's how we discern our vocations in life, is. and it's how we grow. Yes, right. It's how we not only grow as human beings, but grow in our relationship with God and grow in our discipleship. It's not hunky dory, beautiful sunshine and rainbows all the time. It's just not, and it—and it can't be, because there is so much within us that we love to hide, and love to push off to the side and, and tamper down. And so what discernment does is it takes those things and it starts to tug them back out into the light again and again and again and that is a painful experience. Right? It's like it's like this this purging. You are you are allowing God to purge these things off of you, to burn them and shred them off of you so that on the other side hopefully you are more and more Christ-like in everything you do and say and are.
1: Father, would it be fair to say, is it was, I, I can answer the question after, I'll answer the question that I ask you. Was seminary one of the hardest things you ever did in your life? Yes. In a job interview about um, seven years ago, they asked me what the hardest thing I ever did in my life was, and I said, there's nothing that came close. And I don't want to scare anybody here,
0: but it was the hardest thing I ever did. Absolutely, which Which is so rewarding, right? I did not like seminary. It was the hardest thing I've ever done. But I would not take it back because in that experience, I found who God really is. And I found in that who I really am. And I was ordained a deacon, and then I was ordained a priest, and it has not been an easy journey Mm -hmm. whatsoever. And it has been so fulfilling and so filled with life and love and joy and triumph and suffering and sacrifice. And I earnestly would not change anything about it. Discernment is so hard. (laughs) I think that's just like the moral of the story. I mean, there are beautiful moments of God's grace and God's love and God's life. But discernment, earnest discernment, is going to be so gut-wrenchingly challenging that it's going to make you or it's going to break you. And hopefully, it does both.
1: Yes. There you go. Hopefully,
0: your discernment, my discernment, everyone's discernment is making them and then breaking them. And then making them and then breaking them again. Because in this like growth and then this challenge and then this like God breaking open our hearts, we find out who we really are. And then we find out who we are and who God is and how we, the two of us, me and God, are going to grow together down this path. And that's discernment.
1: Well, Done. That is a w- nice. really wonderful way to explain that, and I, you know, that is not unique to the vocational discernment of a priest. It's, it's. It, it, we're, I know we're kind of reemphasizing this over and over, but the, the, the path of discipleship, the discernment of a vocation, is it has elements that are probably very similar for everyone, and it's that peeling down, peeling back of, of, of. Um, tearing down those things in in your life that may be blocking you from being the, the disciple of Christ that you are, and um, it's like you said, it's painful. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, is it ever! There are a lot of there are a lot of things that you can discover about yourself that you really have to discover about yourself because then once you rec- can acknowledge. Um, Increasingly acknowledge who you are, and, and then you acknowledge who you are in God's eyes, then you can better understand God, and you better understand God, you better understand yourself. When you do that, then you can better understand your relationship with others and how you can serve them and the greater good and receive the service that they give you as a gift.
0: Absolutely. I mean, if there's one, if I've said it once, i said it a hundred times, and it may just be my catchphrase God wants us to be uncomfortable. Yeah. We have, we have to be uncomfortable if we want to be better. And you're echoing the words of that guy that lives
1: in Rome that wears white. You know, <laughs> exactly. Make, you know, messy. You make it messy. Yes. Um, uh, because, you know, when you want to build up something beautiful, sometimes you have to tear things down to get things back in order. So you yeah. can build up something and you're continually building.
0: Absolutely. And it is messy. Life is messy. You experience this beauty. While at the same time, you are experiencing the messiness of life.
1: Wow, that was interesting. That was that a was, good talk.
0: <laughs> thank you for share, thank you for taking the time to share today. Yeah. It was great to hear. It was great to hear a little bit more. I know I've heard a little bit about it, but it was good to hear a little bit more. And
1: It was just enough. There was just I, enough.
0: I think. Yeah. I just, I love your family. You guys are so great. Well, I
1: love you. Thank I love every, I love our church family. And thank yeah. you. I want to just say thank you. I was, um. I, I don't know if you could see this, but my jaw was, dropped down a little bit. I was enamored with what you were saying and it wasn't because you were saying something grandiose to me. You were exposing a little bit of yourself to me and it's, it was really, really enriching for me to hear your part, a sliver of
0: your story. For now, we'll we'll wrap up our third episode and part two of our chat on vocations as we kind of round out National Vocations Awareness Week. Thank you for sharing, and uh, let us continue to pray for vocations. Vocations to the priesthood, yes. Vocations to religious life, absolutely. But vocational discernment for all of us, as we all struggle to figure out what it is that our paths of discipleship need to look like, might look like, and what God wants them to look like. So keep all of us in your prayers, and we will keep all of you in ours. Thanks, John. Thank you, Father, and God bless.